I first became a biologist and then I became a doctor, a specialist in internal medicine and acquired a professorship in clinical research and analysis in recognition of my special capability of analyzing medical research and find out if it is reliable or not. I co-founded the Cochrane Collaboration in 1993. We were a, a group of idealists that were fed up with the fact that the, the medical literature is generally unreliable. So we wanted to find out what was reliable and publish systematic reviews on the benefits and harms of interventions used in healthcare. In 2013, you, you published a book, uh, Deadly Medicine and um, Organized Crime. What was it about? And there is a subtitle, How Big Pharma Has Corrupted Healthcare. So it was about the devastating consequences of allowing capitalist enterprises to develop and market drugs. And I, I am pretty sure I was the first person in the world that dared use the term organized crime about the business model of drug companies. Some would say maybe that's also a very bold statement, or what? Maybe, but that is the truth. Uh, Pfizer was once the world's biggest drug company. It was convicted by a jury of organized crime. And all the other big drug companies, they do the same as Pfizer did. They violate the law to such an extent that it is organized crime. But when I submitted an article to the British Medical Journal, they would not allow me to use the term organized crime. So they changed it to corporate crime, which is uh, less uh, disturbing for people. But my book created headlines all over the world and it has come out in, I think, 19 languages now. And it won first prize at the British Medical Association's uh, book competition the next year after it was published in the category Basis of Medicine. So people really appreciated the book. And why was it so much appreciated? because I document in the book that our prescription drugs are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. And I also demonstrated why this is the case and what we can do to make it better. We have just had a devastating COVID-19 pandemic that came out of Wuhan in China it has killed about 7 million people. But our prescription drugs kill millions of people every year, most of whom even didn't need the drugs. 
that killed them. So this is a huge tragedy. And I wonder why the world panicked so much when we got the COVID-19 pandemic. And yet, just accept that our prescription drugs are the third major killer in this world. In one of my later books, I have documented that 10 different studies done in quite different ways. When you, when you look at these 10 studies together, you become absolutely convinced that yes, it is true. It is the third major cause of death. There are some academics that consider it the fourth major cause of death, but that's not important. It's still a very big cause of death. And therefore you might wonder, why do people take so many drugs when so many people get killed by the drugs they take? But how did you reach this conclusion? Where did it all begin for you? Well, it began a very long time ago because um, I first became a biologist and didn't really know what to do with that. And then my grandfather, who was a general practitioner, told me, why don't you go into the drug industry? So I did that. And I discovered quite quickly that uh, what the sales force told the doctors was mainly incorrect and sometimes even fraudulent. So I discovered very early on that the drug industry is full of lies. So one of my statements has been, the drug industry doesn't sell drugs, it sells lies about drugs. And people believe in these lies and they prescribe far too many drugs to patients and patients take far too many of them. But all these prescription drugs are supposed to help people. Isn't that the purpose to begin with? The way you approve drugs is a broken system. Because you just need to demonstrate in two randomized trials or sometimes even less. And for cancer drugs, even without any randomized trial, that you think your drug has some benefits. And then you cannot have a drug without harms. All drug causes harms. But these harms are downplayed by everyone. Sometimes the drug industry omits even dead patients from their publications. For example, in psychiatry, it has been shown that half of all deaths and half of all suicides have been omitted from published trial reports. And when drug regulators receive an application for a new drug, they are very much focused on the benefits. And of course, they also look at the harms, but in a stepmotherly fashion. The harms are not equally important. The drug regulators suffer from the misconception that harms 
can be controlled. And how do they do this? They issue a huge number of warnings and precautions when they approve drugs. And as there can be many such warnings for every single drug, and since there are many drugs, this means that you suppose that every doctor is aware of thousands of warnings, which is humanly totally impossible. And I can give you one very clear example. What we have learned as medical students is that warfarin, which was originally a rat poison, this is a drug that increases your risk of bleeding to death. So the rats, they die. But it is used when you have a blood clot, for example, in your heart, then this drug can be life-saving um, for preventing future uh, blood clots in your heart or in your brain. And Every medical student has been told that you have to be extremely careful when you prescribe warfarin for anybody because it interacts with a lot of other drugs and even food items. If you eat cabbage, for example, you will increase your risk of bleeding. So it's a very dangerous drug and therefore you need to know exactly if it interferes with other drugs the patients are receiving. And I have seen studies that have shown that about half of doctors, they prescribe other drugs that increase your risk of dying because of bleeding. So they are not even able to use warfarin safely, even though we have learned so much about warfarin when we studied uh, at medical school. So this tells you that all these warnings that drug regulators issue, the doctors just don't know them. And when you then think about polypharmacy, very many patients receive several drugs at the same time. And doctors have absolutely no idea how several drugs can interfere with each other and sometimes increase the risk of death dramatically. Uh, many drugs, they either increase the metabolism of other drugs or decrease the metabolism, which means that the blood level of drugs can change depending on what other drugs you receive. And there are many other ways drugs can interact. So, uh, we just don't know what happens when you give five or ten drugs to the same patient. We only know that this will likely increase the risk of death for that patient. And now I can give you a very concrete example. Um, when Vioxx was approved by the US drug regulator, which is called the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, many years ago, it was seen as progress because this drug had less risk of causing ulcers in your stomach than other arthritis drugs.
But we also knew that the mechanism of action of this drug meant that it must increase the risk of thrombosis. So what did the FDA do? They approved the drug despite knowing that it increases the risk of thrombosis. And now I want to read aloud to you what, what the um, associate director of FDA's Office of Drug Safety said about this. David Graham is his name. He said, the way FDA approaches safety is to virtually disregard it. FDA believes there is no risk that cannot be managed when the drug has become marketed. What FDA says is, we can't be 95% certain this drug will kill you. Therefore, we will assume it doesn't. And then they let it on the market. Imagine if I was a family doctor and I told one of my patients, now go home and take this drug. I can't be 95% sure it won't kill you. But if you survive, come back and get a prescription for some more of this drug. <laughs> I mean, the patient would never go to the pharmacy. But this is how our drug regulators deal with safety. That brings me back to some very important information about your person. You became very famous in the medical world for your contribution to the Cochrane collaboration. And since it has been claimed that you have been silenced, that people in this organization got rid of you because of the way that you spoke out about these things. What about your current situation, Peter? How is it today for you to, to, to be in the other end of this um, should I say, extermination process. I co-founded the Cochrane Collaboration in 1993 and I created the biggest Cochrane Center in the entire world, the Nordic Cochrane Center, which came on government finances in Denmark. And I was very known and visible in Cochrane for my scientific integrity and for calling a spade for a spade. This became too much for our new CEO, Mark Wilson, who was employed in 2012. So he went after me right from the beginning. And my criticism of psychiatry and psychiatric drugs led psychiatrists to submit complaints to him about me. And instead of supporting me, he literally threw me under the bus. And I was expelled in a show trial that is one of the worst the world has ever seen in academia. And it was mentioned in Science and Nature, Lancet, British Medical Journal, Le Monde, everywhere. People were appalled about what happened. But it was a very bad move of Cochrane to expel me because I was known as a person people could trust. So a lot of people lost trust in Cochrane after they expelled me. They, so to speak, did not shoot themselves in the foot, but higher up, as a commentator wrote to me. But that's, 
that's maybe one of the most strange thing about this process is that Cochrane used to be known as trusted evidence. Yes. What went wrong? Well, when you have an idealistic organization, it is almost a law of nature that if that organization becomes very respected and influential, then sooner or later it attracts the wrong people. Let's be frank and say it attracts psychopaths whose only idea is their own power and influence. And they ruthlessly go after people who can threaten their dream of absolute power about everything. This was, this was what happened in my case. But then you also ask, what, how is my life today? Well, the last years in Cochrane were pretty horrible because I was, I was uh, the subject of a witch hunt from the CEO and people who agreed with him. So today I have a much better life because I'm a free man and I created an institution called Institute of Scientific Freedom, which is what Cochrane is not about nowadays, because it's about pleasing those who hold the power. So Cochrane, Cochrane has deteriorated and I think won't survive. But, but the brand was very good before this, big, uh, yes. this thing happened. Yes, the brand was good, but it's not good any longer. But let's come back to why the drugs kill so many people, shall we? Um, I was, but I just wanted to, to take that moment and, and, and try and explain how you came to your conclusions also because of your work in Cochrane. I, I guess you collaborated with a lot of people around the world about the, the conclusions that you arrived uh, with. Not really. Not really? No. Okay. I read the science and I'm pretty good at analyzing science, whether it's reliable or not. And then I wrote my books. And uh, the drug industry did not have a single good argument against my books. So... Um, Organized crime says something about money. Yes. Let's talk about the money. What is it about the money? Oh, you, sh you should always follow the money in this world. And um, the drug industry has discovered that in the USA, which is the only country in the world that comes up with huge fines for crimes the drug industry has committed. Even in the USA, and even if the fines amount to billions of dollars, it's a pretty tiny fraction of what these companies have owned through their crimes. So you have taught the companies that crimes pay well and therefore they continue doing heinous crimes where they manipulate the research some research is fraudulent, as I said, deaths are missing in the published trial reports. And then the marketing is also criminal. They market drugs for all sorts 
of indications for which the drugs were never approved, which is illegal, and often to vulnerable populations like children and the elderly. And then they kill them off in large numbers. And the drug industry doesn't care how many people they kill as long as they earn more money on the crimes than it costs them. It's very simple. But already in this episode you said FDA, they don't do what they're supposed to do. No. You say that Cochrane, who used to be a favorite of yours, trusted evidence doesn't work anymore. No. You say that you should always follow the money, and the money is the big problem. Yes. So what, could, what can we do? Oh, we can do a lot of things. And uh, I would like to compare with the airline industry. Pilots are obsessed with airline security. And you know why? Because if, an, if, if a plane goes down, the pilot gets killed together with all the passengers. Whereas if a doctor prescribes a dangerous drug and the patients die, nothing happens to the doctor. The doctor doesn't even find out that the drugs killed the patients. For example, these newer arthritis drugs like Vioxx that causes myocardial infarction. I have estimated that Vioxx alone has killed more than 100,000 people. Does the doctor find out? Never. So many patients die from myocardial infarctions anyway. So how should a doctor know that I killed this particular patient with Vioxx? The doctor will never find out that he or she kills a large amount of their patients. We can only see that if we use statistics. Then we can see it very clearly. And uh, you ask me, what can we do to make a better system? Well, consider this. If an airline goes down, if an airplane goes down, not an airline, an airplane, then you will have a commission that will look at why did this happen. This commission will not be Boeing or other producers of planes. It will be a commission of independent people. And if, if they found out there was something wrong, then it is not left to the airline company to suggest what should be done differently in the future. They will be told what they must do differently so that no more airplanes crash. With our drugs, it's very different. When a drug regulator has put a dangerous drug on the market and the dead bodies begin to pile up and people call for an investigation, Will it be an independent investigation? No. It will be the same people who approved the drug in the first place that is now trusted to come up with an independent investigation that if it results in 
that it was a bad decision to approve the drug, then it falls back on these very same people. And we know psychologically that people are not very keen to admit that they made fatal mistakes. So we, we have a setup that will ensure <coughs> that all these many deaths will just continue. And um, we need a totally different system, but we don't have that system. So one of the things I advise to patients is that when they get a prescription from a doctor, they shouldn't go to the pharmacy. They should go home and do a Google search and they should particularly look up the package insert for that drug. Then they will realize how dangerous the drug might be. And then they might also realize maybe I am not so sick that I need this drug and not go to the pharmacy. For example, these arthritis drugs, they are used to such an extent that uh, in Denmark, I calculated that more than 10% of the population would be in treatment every day with these drugs. And what doctors tell patients, almost no matter what kind of pain they have, it can be a tennis elbow, a painful knee or migraine or whatever, they very often tell them, take paracetamol and an arthritis drug like ibuprofen. Despite the fact that the studies that have been made quite consistently tell us that it doesn't give you more pain relief in most cases to use two drugs instead of just paracetamol. So why add another drug that maybe could kill the patient? There you have the power of marketing. Um, Peter, ordinary physicians, um, uh, are they not supposed to like look f for people like you for advice and guidance? Um, what do you mean? Well, I mean, an ordinary physician is supposed to look for, for science in people who, who spend their time with these uh, investigations. Are they not supposed to, to look for more and new information like your information? It's a battle that you cannot win. The drug industry is so wealthy and they publish so many articles all the time, many of them ghostwritten, which means that they have employed people to write the articles. And then they ask some famous doctors, would you be kind and put your names on this article? And we will also pay you a handsome honorarium. So many doctors do this. And then it looks as if these articles were their own articles, but they have been written by the drug industry. Ghost-written. Ghost-written articles, yes. And therefore, what people like me can achieve is tiny. It's a drop in the ocean compared to how powerful and wealthy and manipulative the drug industry is. But, but, but the reason why I asked the question is that it seems unlikely to me that millions of physicians around the world are hell-bent on doing bad things. And you very often speak about this, this original idea of being a doctor with the phrase, do no harm, do no harm. 
Are they doing harm on purpose? Are they doing harm because of what? Why? That's very easy. The knowledge doctors have about drugs has been carefully concocted by the drug industry. So where is the independent information about drugs? Most drug trials have been done by the drug industry. And they have often been, like the Americans say, tortured till your data confess. So doctors are not doing things in bad faith. They are doing things in good faith. But they kill an enormous amount of their patients. Do you think they are misled? Of course. Their doctors are incredibly misled by the drug industry and also drug regulators because they are quite friendly with the drug industry and drug regulators are mostly financed by the drug industry that they are supposed to regulate. And then you have the revolving door phenomenon. That's the same people go back and forth from a drug company to a drug regulator agency and back again. Or politicians. Politicians, yes, yes. They have politicians, for example, in the, in the United States are quite corrupted by the drug industry. Tell us about your own battle with the European Union back then when you were trying to, to get information. Um, I had a PhD student and we decided to study slimming pills because slimming pills have been devastating for people. They have killed many people, often after horrible agony where they felt that they were being drowned or couldn't breathe. So we wanted to study these slimming pills and also they had a quite small effect, so they weren't really worth taking. So we asked the European Medicine Agency for the clinical study reports of two slimming pills that had been improved in Europe because they are much more reliable than what the companies have published in medical journals. And the European Medicines Agency didn't want to give us the reports. Why not? <laughs> because they wanted to protect the commercial interests of the drug industry. Wouldn't you think that a drug regulator's primary pur purpose was to protect the patients against harm? I would think so, but that was not the case. And then they said, if we didn't like their decision, we could complain to the European Ombudsman. And of course, they never imagined that I would do that, but they didn't know who I am. So of course, I complained to the European Ombudsman, who started an investigation that took three years. And some of his people went to London and visited the European Medicines Agency. And they came back and said, there is nothing in these study reports that can be called commercially confidential information. So the Ombudsman concluded his investigation by accusing the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, of malpractice. Now, you cannot have a European agency being accused of malpractice by the European Ombudsman. Then you have to do something, because if you don't, you will have the whole parliament on your neck very quickly. 
So then the EMA decided to open up their archives. And guess what? They did like the drug industry. The EMA said, oh, we, we have always been very open and now we open our archives. Do you think they told the world it was because of me or the ombudsman? No. That's how the drug industry operates. But it was maybe the biggest achievement in my whole scientific career. In October 2022, you held a conference uh, in Copenhagen uh, together with the University of Oxford. A lot of scientists were present at that conference and um, many of them were very frustrated about the current climate in your field of, of science. Uh, and I'm talking about freedom of speech, freedom uh, of information. What's wrong these days? It has definitely become more and more difficult to publish anything that goes against political interests, guilt interests, for example, those of the psychiatrists, or which goes against the financial interests of the drug industry. So some of us had a meeting after this conference in Copenhagen where we decided more or less that publishing in medical journals looks like a dying enterprise because it gets more and more difficult to get really important results out there. That's insane. It's totally insane. And this supposed to be the place to go for the best information. Exactly. But you know what? The big medical journals that have the highest prestige of all medical journals, they are beholden to the drug industry. And why? because the drug industry advertises in their journals. And if they publish something that goes against the interests of the drug industry, they, there are examples that the industry has boycotted advertisements and no longer advertise. So to say they're cutting the money stream? They're cutting the money stream, yes. Or they drag the editors into a lawsuit which can be very costly even if you win and it takes years and then you can appeal to the next level many times. So the drug industry has a firm grip on big uh, medical journals and then you also have the problem that some of these people who are at the top of big medical journals, they sometimes have private interests in the drug industry, particularly specialty journals, for example, psychiatry journals, it's very common that the editors have financial interest in drug companies marketing psychiatric drugs. They might have shares in these companies, they might be on the advisory board where they get handsomely paid or whatever. So we have come to the conclusion more and less that we need to publish ourselves, maybe create our own scientific journals, but as long as we haven't done that, publish on our websites and then tweet about it so that the whole world will know about the research. 
So mm-hmm. people need to get used to this new world order that medical journals have more or less made themselves superfluous. One of the scientists at the conference was Tom Jefferson, who was recently thrown under the bus, as he writes, by none other than Cochrane. What happened? This is a very dirty story. Tom Jefferson has been the primary author for many years of a Cochrane review about physical methods for reducing uh, infections, respiratory infections. So he did a review where he showed that for influenza-like illnesses, for example, uh, face masks did not have a visible effect. And then came the COVID-19 pandemic and he updated his review in the beginning of the pandemic, in the beginning of 2019. But then Cochrane leadership sabotaged publication of his review. It's his own expression, sabotage. They held it up for nine months in 2019 before it was published. And when it was published, they even had an editorial that somehow criticized the review. And during these nine months, virtually the whole world mandated people to wear face masks. For example, when they went shopping or public transport or whatever they did. So uh, he showed in his updated review that face masks do not seem to work. And this was politically highly unpopular. And now when he updated his review recently, the Cochrane's editor-in-chief caved into the pressure from people who believed in face masks and published a statement on Cochrane's website where she said that this review could not study whether face masks worked. But that was precisely one of the aims. But of, was of, she qualified to make that judgment? No, she wasn't. She's a psychiatrist. And uh, it was precisely one of the aims of this review was to study whether face masks had any effect. But is it true what Tom Jefferson writes in a uh, in reply to this case that he has the copyright on this review? Um, Tom Jefferson doesn't say he has the copyright if it's not correct. I have not studied the details. But how, how is it possible then to make an apology on his behalf? Well, she has not changed his review, but she threw him under the bus, as he said. And this is a scandal. She furthermore wrote in her statement that the summary was misleading for which she apologized. I mean, an editor should support authors that have done the right thing, that did nothing wrong and did not conclude wrongly. But she didn't do that. So Cochrane has degenerated into an organization that wants to please those who have the power, the guilt interest and the monetary interest. 
A few, a few psychiatrists complained about you back in the day when you were still a member of the Cochrane Collaboration. I think at that time you were even a member of the board. And, and they made some similar uh, judgment back then, and, and I don't remember if it was apologies, but something like, you know, uh, trying to discredit you. Let's put it that way. You are absolutely correct. I have shown in my research that psychiatry is a specialty that does more harm than good. And this is because they make far too many diagnoses, doubtful diagnoses, and they always lead to treatment with usually more drugs, more than one drug, and maybe electroshock. And this is harmful for people. So I have analyzed psychiatric drugs in great detail in my research and books throughout many years. And I have shown that this is the case. Uh, the more psychiatric drugs people use, the more people get on disability pension because they can't function. They are destroying people. The cognitive functions are... Oh, in all sorts of ways. Yes, yes. And, and uh, of course, leading psychiatrists, they went against me and they complained to the Cochrane leadership about me. And when I had published an article in the Daily Mail about how harmful psychiatric drugs are, the CEO of uh, Cochrane, Mark Wilson, he published a public statement on Cochrane's homepage that it could be misinterpreted that I had done my work on behalf of Cochrane, which was nonsense. And furthermore, he said that Cochrane did not share my views. I had no views. I had studied the science and I concluded what the science told me. This is not having views. You can have views about everything. And now they're also trying to discredit Tom Jefferson and Carl Hennigan. Oh, Cochrane continues along the same path. They are trying to discredit Tom Jefferson and Carl Hennigan as well. They have done wonderful work. Let's put it on pause, because if I'm not mistaken, at the time you were still a member of Cochrane, sitting in the board, Cochrane was expanding. You were you're opening new uh, countries up, uh, new members of the Cochrane collaboration. How is it today? Um, I saw that under Mark Wilson's leadership, he's a journalist and he doesn't understand what science and scientific freedom is about, but he understands a lot about what power is. So I saw early on that Cochrane is sailing towards an iceberg. The Cochrane Titanic will go under if no one does anything. So I ran for a seat at the governing board. There were 11 applicants. I got the most votes, even though I was the only one who criticized the Cochrane leadership. Normally in a big organization, if you criticize the leadership, you, you don't get elected. I got elected with the most votes. And many prominent Cochrane people wrote to me and congratulated me and had great faith in me that I would be able to change the direction of travel in Cochrane. 
So I became a threat to the CEO. So he arranged a horrible show trial, hired a lawyer to come up with dirt about what I had done throughout my whole career in Cochrane, but they didn't have documents going back longer than 15 years. And the lawyer actually concluded that he did not find it fair to go back so many years because any issues back then had been resolved because I was still there. And furthermore, he did not find any faults with the way I had used my mandate in Cochrane. So instead of concluding that there was no basis on which to expel me from Cochrane, the Cochrane leadership carried on this horrible show trial. And my point is, it hasn't gone well since, has it? No, it hasn't gone well, but I, I just need to explain to you that um, I was allowed five minutes to defend myself before I was kicked out of the boardroom. During these five minutes, I reminded the board that we had agreed earlier that board meetings should be recorded. And I actually got hold of these recordings which Cochrane wanted to destroy afterwards. Everything should be sacred, a secret. But I got hold of the recordings because four board members resigned in protest of my expulsion and one of them gave me the recordings which he had on his computer. So when you listen to these recordings, you can see what a show trial is about. They desperately tried to invent some dirt on me and they launched the idea that I had abused staff sexually. They compared me with sexual predators, well-known sexual predators. And of course, I've never abused anybody sexually, but even in the official speech that announced my expulsion, they hinted at exactly this. You cannot sink any deeper than that. As far as I remember, there's not a single word in the report from the lawyer they hired that talks about something like that, even the allegations. Absolutely nothing. nothing, nothing. Absolute, it was invented on the spot because they needed to have an excuse to expel me. And um, the result of all this was that Cochrane was widely condemned throughout the international scientific community because I was very well known for my moral integrity and science of a high quality. I was somehow a symbol of Cochrane. And uh, after that, it went quickly downwards for Cochrane. It was the worst thing they could have done to expel me. One of the witnesses who was also a member of the board was, was David Hammerstein. He was also very furious about your, your situation back then. Um, people like you and David and other, where, where have you gone since? What are you doing with yourself? You still believe in, I, I guess, main principle of doing no harm and trusted evidence. Well, David Hammerstein had been a member of the European Parliament elected for Spain. And I convinced David to join the Cochrane Governing Board because we desperately needed good people there because the other people were weak. 
they were not controlling the CEO. The CEO was controlling them. So we did not have a governing board that was functioning. So David joined Cochrane in order to help prevent it hitting the iceberg. And when David resigned in protest over my expulsion, he just continued with all his other valuable work in Europe. And I continued with my work, writing books, published scientific articles, giving lectures and all sorts of things. And then came COVID. Yes. What do you mean about that? <laughs> that, I mean, the, 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 way you was just, the way you were discredited was the, the beginning of, of this scientific uh, downgrading of, of trust. And, and uh, in, in 2020, COVID arrived and just about every scientist in this world was silenced from one moment to another. And I, I just imagine uh, if, if Peter Goethe has been around in the Cochrane collaboration, member of the board, maybe he had said something about this. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have, it's like a... I have studied COVID in great detail. I published a book about vaccines in general that has a chapter about COVID. And not so long ago, I published the book, The Chinese Virus yeah. Killed Millions and Scientific Freedom. And in that book, I describe in great detail the scientific censorship that came along with COVID-19, that those at power, they only wanted one version of the truth. And if you didn't agree with them, no matter how good science and documents you had, you might be censored by social media and somehow excluded from publishing in good journals or whatever the punishment would be. So COVID led to a lot of scientific censorship and good researchers are actually outraged by what we have seen. And then yet again, Cochrane delivered one good review for this whole spectacle. That was the review by, by Tom Jefferson and Con Hannigan. And now it's also been discredited. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, it's, it's pretty funny. One of my close collaborators said, where has Cochrane been throughout the COVID-19 pandemic? We would have expected Cochrane to publish a lot of rapid reviews about our, our hydrochloroquine, our ivermectin, our all the other drugs effective against the virus. And what about uh, keeping distance and the use of face masks and all sorts of the but vaccines, other things. And of course, Cochrane did publish some of the reviews, but they have been overall remarkably very friendly silent one of the world's most well-known uh, scientists the <clears throat> psychologist Jordan B Peterson he catched on to this a few days ago I read it on Twitter that he wrote something like uh, uh, trusted evidence used to be Cochrane and uh, not so much anymore so what's up is, is, is this going to to get a, a life of its own this this censorship that people are awakening to this new reality that scientists like you will be discredited. 
scientists like Tom Jefferson. If he writes something that goes against the elite, he will be discredited, even from within his own ranks. Is this the reality? Uh, Cochrane cannot survive this. They chose the wrong path. When we started Cochrane, we agreed to go against the authorities because they were often wrong. We wanted to get it right. This is not the Cochrane we see today. I criticized Cochrane for a lot of things when I became elected to the governing board. And somewhat later, after I had been expelled, in 2021, the major funder of Cochrane announced a serious cut in funding of the UK-based Cochrane groups, which are almost half of those in the whole world. And from the 31st of March 2023, the funding was cut totally for all these UK-based Cochrane groups. And why? Because the major funder criticized Cochrane for very much the same reasons as I had criticized Cochrane. Moreover, he said that the writing had been on the wall for eight years, which is exactly the period where Mark Wilson, the journalist, had total power over Cochrane and basically destroyed it. So, I have now seen an email from a Cochrane group in the UK where I have published a Cochrane review that says that they are very sorry but they have to close their group now because they have no funding and that all the groups in the UK will be closed because they have no funding. So Cochrane is in a state of chaos right now and I am pretty convinced that it is a dying organization. It did the wrong things for a number of years. But they wanted to silence you like they are trying to silence other scientists. And now you, you have started your own podcast, Broken Medical Science, and this is the first episode that you are, you are doing. Um, how can we get back to trusted evidence, and where do we find it? I, I have the view, which is based on evidence, that whenever you create an idealistic organization, a grassroots roots organization that really wants to do better, to create a better world, it usually goes well in the beginning unless it is killed right from the start. But if it survives, it usually goes well in the beginning. But, you know, sooner or later, psychopaths find out this is a brilliant organization. I want to take over this organization because then I will look big and I can take credit for all these things that people have patiently developed throughout all these years. This happened in Cochrane, and it happens regularly in all idealistic organizations. So when you ask me, what can I suggest? Will there be another Cochrane organization? 
I would say I don't believe in this after having seen what happened to Cochrane and many other good organizations. I think that we will see a future where some people will be trusted and respected because of their high level honesty, integrity, morals, and yeah, what else you can say? And then we will tend to trust what they publish. But to trust organizations, I think we will not see this again. Uh, we cannot trust drug agencies. Uh, they could very well do something so that our drugs were not the third leading cause of death. But they don't. They, basically, they don't care. And what about the WHO? Well, it's influenced by all sorts of interests. And the WHO sometimes does some very good things. Other times, they do some very bad things. And you have the same with other organizations. What organization can you really trust in healthcare? I don't know a single one. But it seems it's a strange path you have been on because first you, you co-founded one of the world's, no, the world's leading uh, source of, of, of truthful information, Cochrane. That became like the primary source to go for independent information. Then it became so powerful that, <laughs> I don't know who or what, but somehow at least you were discredited. And you were also expelled. <laughs> then we have this pandemic situation where all scientists in the world are silenced. It seems like a strange path to me. That, that, and now you're here and, and uh, you're trying to get your word out on the internet through independent uh, uh, free social media platforms. Is that the way to go? You said that all scientists are silenced. Uh, what you meant was, of course, scientists that document that the prevailing... I mean, I mean we just had the release of the Twitter files. The Twitter files was released a few months ago, and yes. they show that the whole social media system was designed to, to shut down any critical information. It was not to be seen by anyone. That's what I mean. You said all scientists. We should yeah. correct it to those scientists that had documented that the main narrative was incorrect. Mm -hmm. They were silenced yeah. to an abhorrent Oh, yes, of degree. course, you're right, you're right. Yeah, the they, liars were not. They, no, no, <laughs> they were silenced to an abhorrent degree. And the big medical journals actually were part of this horrible new kind of censorship. You know what I think about mostly when we are doing this, this work, Peter? I'm worried about how this will, will be received at the other end in the social media platforms. Are we going to be censured because we say these things? I think we are. We will see what happens, but we will continue to tell people what we think is right. And then we need to go on from there. In, in, uh, in Facebook, on YouTube and other places, uh, the social media companies put in this, this uh, blue mark that if somebody like you was saying something about COVID, they would write, 
for correct information about the current pandemic COVID situation, go to this official place. In Denmark, it was something called Sundhedsstyrelsen, was like the government organization. And everybody who made a comment about this would see this blue mark. Do you think it's going to help? I am. I'm pretty sure that will be more and more opposition towards this new kind of censorship that reminds me of the Middle Ages. So people, uh, Peter will talk about many things in this podcast, many subjects, many interesting people we are going to, to hear from, because you know many people around this world that you have been working with, collaborating with, talking with during your long career. So it's going to be very fascinating to, to get into your world and, and listen to, to everything. Let me tell you one thing. Many journalists have asked me, don't you get many enemies by the kind of work you do? And then I say, oh yes, oh yes, thousands or millions. But then you should see my friends. They are the best you can ever dream about because these people also try to make things right and correct wrongs.